It is my intention this evening, beloved, to finish up this chapter. I'm going away for a couple of weeks. I, I didn't want to come back to Luke chapter 6 and finish off the rest of what remained of the chapter. So I'm going to try, do my best, to uh, deal with all the verses that remain, verse 39 through verse 49. This is the tenth message since we commenced verse 20. And that's really where it all begins at verse 20 in terms of the Lord bringing this message that he did as he locked eyes, as you see from verse 20, upon his disciples. Now, if we understand the context, they're not the only ones that are there. You can see from verse 17, he came down with them and stood in the plain and the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people out of all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. So you have all these people, a whole multitude, verse 19, that sought to touch him. And this tremendous crowd of people, but he appears to lock eyes from the language of verse 20, particularly upon his disciples. He has a word for them. And so in the 30 verses, from verse 20 through verse 49, our Lord is addressing them. We should see him as honing in upon them and addressing the particular needs that they have and the message they need to hear. And if you follow what the Lord says, in one sense it is topical. It's a topical message. He's honing in on disciples. When you think of everything that we have covered, you can put it under the subject, the simple topic of, well, this is discipleship. This is Christian discipleship. The overarching theme, what the Lord is addressing is the life of those that are followers of Christ. What that life looks like and how it is to be manifested both internally and externally. But in another sense, as I was reading over this and meditating upon this this week, the instruction from our Lord from verse 20 also seems to follow a, a concentric delivery. It's like there's these core truths that are presented and then he kind of spirals out to deal with other aspects without ever really leaving the core issues that are addressed. So in verse 20 through 26, as he looks at the inner part of our being, and I don't want to read it all, but just to remind you, he's dealing with blessed be poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, those that hunger, those that weep, those that are hated, and so on. So there, there's this, this identifying a particular type of people and the experience that they have of poverty and hunger and so on that they experience within their life. This is the inner life of our being. And we looked at that. We've already dealt with it, of course. In verse 27 through verse 38, this is how the disciple is governed in his interpersonal relationships. So rather than just the inner life, the Lord then moves out to the interpersonal relationships, obviously with a key focus upon our enemies. But as I said to you before, it's not just enemies, it's everyone up to enemies. This is how we relate to men and women. And then verse 39 through 49, we have in these verses how... The Christian disciple is governed in his leadership of others. So you have the inner life, you have the interpersonal relationships, and then the leadership of others. And this is the Christian life. This, this covers everything. The resident truths, the core truths of the individual, the salvific truths that we looked at already in the beginning where he's dealing with the heart of the person, the relational truths, how we relate to one another, and then the role model truths that we're going to consider this evening. 
Christ's message calls for humility across the board. Humility before God, that's the inner part. Humility before others in our relationship with them. And then humility as an example before others as we lead in the various roles given to us. And it struck me this past week. It struck me that in everything Jesus deals with here, it is in stark contrast to the scribes and the Pharisees. It's completely different. What he is saying is in contrast to everything that they have taught for centuries. And so whenever he is speaking these words, it ought to be self-evident to everyone, once he is finished, that we are called to follow him, that his example is higher than any other example ever witnessed. So when we come to verse 39, you look at it, we read these verses, you can see, first of all, if you, if you want to avoid destruction, you follow Jesus. And I'm just pulling this in. His, his primary focus is to, to disciples, but there is a real sense in which the Lord Jesus is the, the perfect manifestation of all of this. He is the one that we are to follow and lead, and even that is, is brought about in verse 47. But, but look at it. If we, if we want to avoid destruction, we follow Jesus. He spake a parable unto them, can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? And really, the, the, the point that they're to get from that is, follow me. If you want to avoid falling into a ditch, follow me. Verse 40, if you want to be complete, built up, again, follow Jesus. The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. And is this not the goal then of every genuine disciple, every follower of the Lord Jesus? It's to be as his master. If he sets a lower bar, then he's going to fail to become that which the Lord intends that person to become, which is, of course, conformed to the image of his Son. So again, the Lord Jesus becomes the perfect example of one to follow. Verses 41 to 42, if you want to help people rather than hinder people, again, follow Jesus. Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye, when thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. Well, who is the one who is perfectly equipped to help people because he has nothing blinding him or hindering his sight? It's the Lord Jesus. He is the one who has no speck. He has no log. He has nothing hindering his perspective. He is in the perfect place to help us. And so we take admonition more readily from him. Verse 43 through verse 45, if you want to be fruitful, again, follow Jesus. Not reading at all, but he is the good tree that brings forth good fruit. And verses 46 through 49, if you want to survive the storm, follow Jesus. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And he goes on then to say, the one who hears and does is like a man who builds his house and digs deep and lays a foundation on a rock before he builds that house. Again, if we want to survive the storm, we follow the Lord Jesus, which is the exhortation he gives in verse 47, hearing his sayings, doing them, and so on. So, as you read through these verses, there are all these contrasts that come about as well as he is teaching this aspect of, of leadership. And you will find, for example, and there are so many different ways we could have looked at this, but there's an emphasis particularly upon our faculties. 
So you have sight in verses 39 through 42, speech in verse 43 through 45, and then hearing in verse 46 through 49. Sight, speech, and hearing. And they all are relevant, and we'll use them to help us understand the text this evening. But there are other contrasts. You have seeing versus blindness, good fruit versus evil fruit, rocky foundations versus earthy foundations. The Lord is drawing these contrasts. I say again, without elaborating too much, what the Lord, in part, is showing to His hearers is there's a clear distinction between Him and all the other rabbis, all the other scribes, all the other teachers in Israel. He is different. So as we look at these verses then tonight, we consider them under the title, The Disciple as a Leader. The Disciple as a Leader. And note with me, first of all, the disciples are taught the importance of sight. They are taught the importance of sight. Verses 39 through 42. He speaks the parable, can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? But it doesn't stop there. In verses 41 and following, he continues to deal with sight when he deals with the moat and the beam and so on and so forth. It's all relating to sight. Now, as we look at these verses, note first. Sight is essential to lead. Sight is essential to lead. Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? Now, this scene is very clear. The Lord is drawing something that's very easy for anyone to grasp. You have a blind person leading another blind person. Inevitably, they're going to step somewhere that will be destructive, harmful, hurtful. And so, the clear exhortation, everyone realizes it would be silly, it wouldn't make any sense to follow if you feel yourself to be blind and needing to be led, why would you then go hand in hand with someone else who doesn't know where they're going? It makes no sense. So sight is essential to lead. And of course, really at the heart of seeing clearly is truth. It is truth that enables us to see clearly. This isn't some just illustration to to hone in on one uh, ability to see physically, the idea of seeing here is related to the perception of truth and therefore the ability to lead someone along the right way. We know this all through Scripture. Just one example from the Old Testament in Isaiah 44, verse 18 They have not known nor understood, for he hath shut their eyes that they cannot see and their hearts that they cannot understand. So again, you have this sense of blindness that reflects an inability to understand. You can't see, therefore you don't understand. But more clearly, and you may want to turn here yourself in Matthew chapter 15, Matthew chapter 15, we have here the Lord uh, addressing his disciples and teaching them something about the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 15, verse 12. Matthew 15, verse 12. Then came his disciples and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. Let them alone. They be blind leaders of the blind. And if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. Now you see the Lord then pulling this idea of blindness clearly with, in relation to rather, the Pharisees, the teachers, the one who felt themselves to be in a place where they could instruct other people. 
And the Lord is saying they're blind. They're blind leaders of the blind. When he gives his message to them, the, 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 the several, I think there's maybe eight of the woes that come from our Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 23, and woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, you know the passage. In Matthew 23, verse 24, he says, ye blind guides, referring to the Pharisees. In verse 26 of that chapter, he says, thou blind Pharisee. And so there's this focus upon leadership in relation to knowing the truth and having the ability then to lead others into that truth. So this is what the Lord is presenting here as well. Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch? And here we have, therefore, the shift. As I say, the Lord has been dealing with the inner heart. And then he's been dealing with interpersonal relationships. And now it moves into that standing, which is not just pastors and Pharisees. It really is anyone who has any influence, but particularly to spiritual leaders, whether they be Sunday school teachers, ministers, or in any other context, they have this tremendous warning given by Christ. Do not be like the Pharisees. They are blind, and they lead the blind into the ditch. They lead them to destruction. They lead them to an end that is frightening. He uses the word in verse 40. When you read there, following on in his language, the disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. Of course, the idea is, here's one who is choosing someone to follow. People are disciples. They become disciples of other individuals. They, they choose a master. They choose someone to adhere to. And the reality is that the one you choose to follow, you will never get beyond or above that person. Everyone that is perfect, the idea behind that word is that they're, they're made fit to, they're equipped or prepared. So each one will be equipped as his master. He will become equivalent to his master. He won't rise any higher. He won't go beyond his master, he can at best attain to the level of his master. So if his master is blind, if his master is unable to lead the way, then there can be no hope for the ones who follow. This again is falling on from verse 39. The blind following the blind, the blind leading the blind, inevitably they both fall into the same scenario of destruction. There's no hope for any of them. And so again, you set yourself up, you have this master that you decide to follow. If he is incapable of leading correctly, you will attain simply to whatever height he is. But if he's ending up in the ditch, that's exactly where you will end up as well. This is humbling. It certainly has been humbling for me this week. Even to take the practical outworking of verse 40. And of course, this was a time when extensive libraries were not available to everyone. Libraries existed, but not readily available to people. And so the way people would learn would be by following some master, some rabbi, some teacher. And they would attend then to their teaching to help them in their growth as a person or maybe in a particular area. We may be in a time when we have more access to information more readily, more easily, but I think the truth still bears out. The disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect shall be as his master. The one who comes to completion will simply get to the height of his master. 
no further. To therefore stand before you and to think of each of your lives. And I know some of you are mature and maybe in some areas you have, because of years of the past, you've, you've advanced beyond where I am. Yet for the young people, for the children, there's a sobering reality that as they sit primarily, God sparing me and God sparing them, they sit under the ministry of this pulpit. They will not attain any higher in their understanding than what they hear and what they see. Hosea 4, 9, like people, like priest. Our Lord is warning that the one who does not know the truth will destroy or at the very least diminish the progress of the one that they teach. In his commentary, Kent Hughes, his commentary on Luke, he said this, which again was very humbling. He said, There are few things more important for the discipler than the authenticity of his life. His subtle faults often become great flaws in his disciples. His subtle faults often become great flaws in his disciples. This is very easily seen within the home. It is both a blessing and a lamentation as we see children arise and basically become what they see in their mom and their dad. It's sobering. It's scary. It is humbling. So when we gave ourselves to Christ... I don't want anyone to miss the application here. I don't want to stand alone as the sole person convicted tonight. When we gave ourselves to Christ, it has, of course, this obligation within our hearts. The humility, the poverty of spirit. It also has then obligations in how we relate to one another, how we relate to everyone in the world, even if they go to the extent of being our enemies. But then being a Christian brings the obligation that you will also lead. There will be some context in which you lead. Some context in which you are an example. Some context in which you are instructing others by your life and by your words. And the teacher, he is incapable of leading others to truth and practice which he has not known himself. And so there's a very real sense in which we must seek the best teachers and seek to be the best teachers. Sometimes people ask, you know, what, what preachers do you listen to? And I tell them, I give a short list of various ones I listen to, and, and sometimes they might say who they listen to. But inevitably, as I have looked, and I remember realizing this at one time, not really discerning it prior to this, but realizing all the people I listen to are I don't want to say old, but they're on the older, older side of you know, ministry. They've been about it a long time. I, I think there's inherent wisdom there. There's inherent wisdom in looking to people who have a track record for 25, 30 years. 
It's not that they're perfect, but to learn from someone who's been in the trenches, faced the trials, gone through all the difficulties, and continues to preach Christ faithfully, and have stood by even with the changing influences of the culture and the pressures that come, sometimes from those in the pew, they continue to stand fast and preach Christ fearlessly. And that's the example every young man needs. He needs to look at an older man who's gone through the battles of 25, 30 years plus, Who are the best teachers? We only have so much time. We must use it carefully. And you think about that even in the books that you read. Think of it. Think The Christian literature that you read, are, are they written by those who are mature with a long track record of being faithful in their service? You can eliminate a lot of junk that is simply a waste of your time if the person does not, the person writing it does not have a long track record of faithful, orthodox teaching and leadership. And we have seen even some rising stars within evangelicalism. They publish their books at 23 years of age. And they're gone before, by the time they're 40. They're not even in the battle anymore. And all the people who have been influenced over those years and Praising them and reading the books and saying how wonderful they are, and, and you see, you see the danger in it. Seek the best teachers. I'm very thankful for even the day in which we live, and the vast majority of books that you read, you're, you're generally better reading <laughs> books that are written by people who are dead and gone. Generally. Not absolutely, but certainly generally. There's a lot of excellent literature. Stood the test of time. We often say that about the best hymns. And so it is with the best literature. The best stuff lasts. It stays the course. So the kind of Puritan paperbacks, for example, that are still there, we're still reading it because they have such a profound influence upon our hearts when read and digested appropriately. It's worth reading. It's worth giving ourselves to. I'm thankful with technology we're able to we are able to listen to ministers and preachers of the Word across the world who are mature and faithful, and those, of course, within our own denomination, and even some beyond, every now and again. Men who have been faithful. Give your time to the best teachers. And parents, don't miss this reality. Sight is essential to lead. And the application, therefore, understanding that Sight comes by knowledge, comes by truth, comes by being acquainted with the Scriptures, therefore drives every one of us back to the Word of God to be students of the Word. To be students of the Word. Are you growing in your knowledge? Are you growing in your understanding? Are Are you growing in what you grasp concerning Christ, who He is, and what He has done? Do you know the Bible better today than you have in the past? Is there growth in the Word? Growth in the Word is essential. Growth in the Word is the way to see clearly. And I don't mean simply by becoming familiar with systematic theologies, biblical theologies, or whatever it might be, being able to argue the case for some particular perspective of the Lord's return. I don't mean that. That has its place. It's helpful. But I mean being acquainted with the God of the Word. Are you in the Word? Spending time in the Word? Considering the Word? Applying the Word? Feeling it grip your heart? being convicted by the Word, 
amazed afresh as you see something again or perhaps even for the first time afresh in the Word. This is the way to see clearly. This is how you traverse life with a perspective that will not lead others into a precarious place. Don't be a blind leader of the blind. Parents, Sunday school teachers, teachers in general, those who have influence in your places of work and employment in your neighborhood, study the word. Sight is essential to lead. But sight is also essential to correct. Sight is essential to correct. Verse 41, Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but perceivest not the beam that is in thine own eye? We've read verse 42 already. I'll not read it again. You understand what's being said here. But again, Jesus is dealing with spiritual sight. Just as the blind cannot perceive the ditch, nor can they perceive the beam that is in their own eye, the log. Now, of course, the illustration is designed to be ridiculous. The Lord is doing that intentionally. But who would let someone come and try to get a tiny little piece of dust out of their eye when they're looking at that person with a huge log coming out of their own? He said, like, get, get away, no way, you're not coming near me. And it's designed to be ridiculous. It's designed to startle. Of course, who would ever do that? But of course, this is the point. This happens all the time. And I would love to spend more time considering how the Lord addresses the person who seeks to do this in the middle of verse 42. Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. Thou hypocrite. And there's a sense in which this, this, this language really encapsulates everything that has been taught from verse 20 onwards. What the Lord is seeking to eradicate, remove, expunge, is hypocrisy. He wants his followers to be sincere. He wants their hearts to be engaged. And so in the innermost being, that poverty-stricken soul, hungering after God, hungering after righteousness found in Christ alone. And then as he deals with, again, the interpersonal relationships right up to the point of dealing with our enemies. In all of that, it is, is striving to implant a real sense of sincerity rather than hypocrisy. You are to be sincere in all that you do and say. I think that's essential to grasp. I think the language of the Lord here is not throwaway. None of his words were ever throwaway. Thou hypocrite is, is pulling out essentially what can be applied to so many who do not take his words to heart. And again, you, you come and you, you just take a step back and you think of the scribes and the Pharisees and essentially many of them were guilty of this. They were hypocrites. This truth must be applied to ourselves before it is applied to others. This need to be able to see the wrong within our own lives. Why beholdest thou? That's a good question. Why beholdest thou? Why is it? I mean, you could just stop there and preach a whole message on the motivations that people have to behold a little speck of dust in their brother's eye rather than give consideration to the log that's in their own. Why do they do it? They're fallen. They're proud. They're all the things we've already considered, especially last week. 
the lack of generosity in their spirit, the critical heart that they have. Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye? Why do you do this? And yet you perceive not the beam that is in thine own eye. Why is that? No one wants to do that. (laughs) Get two people who have a quarrel between them. Maybe it's an ongoing quarrel. It's a quarrel that's been happening for a considerable period of time. And you, you you say to one, you say to the other, what's the issues with the other person? And without hesitation, usually, without hesitation, well, where do you want me to begin? <laughs> they do this, they do that, they've said the other, da, 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 there's a list of things. And then you say to them, okay, instead of coming from that approach, let me ask you this. List the issues in your own life that are causing the quarrel or maybe contributing to the quarrel. They have to pause. Well, let me see. And often that, the response to that, is much slower. Why beholdest thou? This is an exposure of the corruption of our nature. We find it so easy to see from a distance a tiny brother. You've got a little speck in your eye. I can see it from way over here. I can see this speck from way over here. Let me help you. And you can't see this log, this beam that is in your own eye. Again, the Lord is making it ridiculous to drive home a point. This is how men work. Especially if hypocrisy is dominating in their hearts. And there isn't a real sincerity in their being. And so we must, we must be those who search our own hearts, beloved. We must, must pray as we are familiar in Psalm 139. In the end of that Psalm, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You no doubt have prayed that prayer many times, as I have. And you know the importance of it. You know the the hurt of it. You know there's issues in your own life. You want them exposed. You want God to reveal them to you because you don't want to be the hypocrite. You don't want to be the insincere. You come all pious. Brother, let me pull out the moat that is in thine eye. (laughs) Brother. No. Hypocrite. That's what you are. Of course, when you consider these verses, there may be an objection that arises from those on the extreme who say, well, you're not going to help me because I know some flaw in your life. And they resist being helped. They don't want any help from anyone. J.C. Ryle addresses this. He gives caution to those who refuse instruction from anyone because they are inherently flawed. And he says, If no man is to teach or preach to others until he himself is faultless, there could be no teaching or preaching in the world. The erring would never be corrected, and the wicked would never be reproved. To put such a sense as this on our Lord's words brings them into collision with other plain passages of Scripture. 
The main object of our Lord Jesus appears to be to impress on ministers and teachers the importance of consistency of life. He goes on to say, All heads of families and masters of households, all parents, all teachers of schools, all tutors, all managers of young people should often think of the moat and the beam. All such should see in our Lord's words the mighty lesson that nothing influences others so much as consistency. Or I've been using the word sincerity. As I noted at the beginning, humility is a key characteristic in this entire passage and all the ministry of our Lord from verse 20 onwards. That the, the disciple is humble. And he manifests that directly to God, first and foremost, recognizing his poverty and his need for intervention through Christ alone. His humility in dealing with people, being willing even to suffer, even towards or at the hands of his enemies. And then humility, of course, as he leads. And I say this, if humility is as essential a characteristic in teaching others as I believe it is, then a knowledge of your own heart is crucial to be an effective teacher of any subject. If you want to teach anything, anything, I don't care what it is, if you want to be an effective teacher, then you must have a knowledge of your own heart, which knowledge will lay you low. And help you in your communication. We maybe have had teachers who are filled with pride and it was a disaster. We did bad, poorly in that subject. We did poorly in that grade. Because the teacher was, was proud. He had no time for those who maybe struggled or asked questions that they didn't have time for. And you can have all sorts of memories that might arise in your mind over poor experiences sitting in a classroom. So it is even in the pulpit. And so it is in any context. Teaching anything, we must have a knowledge of our own hearts which will remove... Dealing with people in a wrong way as we try to teach the subject that we are given to teach. Therefore, we should perform heart surgery on ourselves before we try to put band-aids on others. That way we are able to minister right. Again, just to underline, it is not saying we cannot help one another. Let me just express it. I think I said that last Lord's Day anyway, but let me just say it again. That the point of seeing clearly, again, this is about sight, verse 42, see clearly is to pull out the moat that is in thy brother's eyes. Sometimes our brethren, our sisters, our children, whomever, they need our help. They need you to be able to see clearly. They need you to have the truth of God in your heart as well as it dominating your spirit in such a way that you can teach in a fashion that is sincere without hypocrisy and therefore... They will listen. Of course, it stands to reason as well. The whole point of this illustration is the person can see this massive log that is in your eye. They're not going to go near you. They see the flaw. They see the problem. They're not going to hear your words. So to be an effective helper, to rightly be able to instruct or correct someone, then there can't be some obvious flaw in the life. That brings us secondly then to see the disciples are not only taught the importance of sight, but they are taught the importance of speech. They are taught the importance of speech. Verse 43 through 45. For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, 
neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit, for every tree is known by its fruit. From thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Turn for a moment to the Sermon on the Mount, just in Matthew chapter 7, before we proceed. Matthew chapter 7. There are many overlapping truths in what we've been dealing with and what we find in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 7, verse 15. And I'm reading this because I want you to see that the whole point of the good tree and the good fruit and so on and so forth is again consistent with the overall theme of teaching and leading. Matthew 7 verse 15. Beware false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Now have that in mind. Beware false prophets. Fruit. That's the issue. And that's what we have again, consistent with the overall passage in Luke chapter 6. He is dealing with those that teach, those that lead in whatever context. And so our Lord then addresses this matter of the fruit that they bear. But not general fruit, it's fruit particular to speech. The end of verse 45 really summarizes the heart of this. For of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. This is a false prophet, or if it's a good or bad, whatever the case might be. This is looking at teachers and what they say. What do they say? What are they speaking? And so if they're speaking that which is wrong, it is because they're wrong. There's something inherently wrong with them. If they speak that which is good, then it's because inherently they are good, using it in the context of what our Lord says. They're doing the right thing. Men don't go to thorns or go and gather figs from, or grapes from bramble bushes and things like that. They don't, they don't do that. They know they're not going to find them there. So we, 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 we know We know where to find good fruit. It isn't a good tree. Or we know that if we see good fruit, it is a good tree. So that's his point in verse 45. In relation then to those that teach, they have to be those who have had a change within their hearts. Now I would, again, if I was spending more time on this and not trying to finish it all up for this evening, just spend some time focusing upon the heart. Considering the importance of the heart, because for the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaketh. This is the primary point. That you know the heart of the man by what he is saying. You know exactly what kind of a person that he is. A man does what he does because he is what he is. Or he says what he says because he is what he is. Now we've often heard it said, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And it's true. We are sinners. We are Bad trees by nature. And it is only the sovereign grace of God that makes any difference between one man and another. And so if he's changed, if his life is transformed, if he really is 
one who knows God and follows God, then you'll know by what he says. You'll be able to determine. The heart rules the speech. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus says, O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? What a question. How can ye, being evil, speak good things? You can't. There's a problem in your being. And this is what I say. In this, it's like the Lord as He is developing these concentric ideas. He moves outward from the inner to our relationships, to our leadership. He comes back at times to deal with the central issues. He doesn't completely move away which, with, uh, from that which He addressed at the beginning. The heart, the heart of the person, the humility of the individual, someone who recognizes his need for a righteousness outside of himself. So as he moves beyond into dealing with other themes, he comes right back into this truth that he dealt with at the beginning. The heart needs to be changed. The individual needs a miracle within their own soul and being. Oh, generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Therefore we're exhorted by the Proverbs, keep thy heart with all diligence. Keep your heart. Out of it are the issues of life. As you lead and as you teach, speech is a vital component of leadership. So often it has proved to be the case that what our children remember what we have said to them at times. Throw away statements, comments. They didn't seem significant to us in the moment, but for some reason they just lodge in there, either for good or for ill. Many times the most positive things that we teach our children were not the things that we planned and set out to teach. It was said in random discussion in the car or while you were engaging in some other thing outside mowing the lawn and you just happened to say something and for some reason it just sticks and years later they say I remember when you said you say, I, don't, I have no recollection of saying that so I remember we were here at such and such a place this is what we were doing and, and you said this and I never forgot it So much of our leadership comes by way of the words we say. And if you want to make sure that the words you speak are helpful, don't work on your words. Work on your heart. Work on the heart. Ploy up the heart. Make sure the heart is humble. Make sure the heart is laid low. Make sure the heart is not lifted up with pride. And then what you say will minister grace to the hearer. Thirdly, the disciples are taught the importance of service. I know we talked about faculties, seeing, and speech. So we have sight and speech, and then you might have thought hearing. 
But the hearing has a purpose. The hearing leads to doing. So that's where we bring in the idea of service. Verse 46. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? This is the point. It's what you do. Whosoever cometh to me and heareth my sayings and doeth them, I will show you to whom he is like. And then verse 48 and 49, he deals with building this house, whether it's upon a good foundation or upon the earth. Now the emphasis, again, is upon hearing. This is not the first time. You go back to verse 17, the end of that verse, when all the multitudes are gathering, which came to hear him. Verse 27, in the middle of his address, But I say unto you, which hear, love your enemies. Hear, those who hear. The question is, are they hearing? And the Lord brings about this matter again. Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? In other words, are you hearing me? It doesn't seem like you're hearing me because you don't do the things which I say. And this, again, was... I just, as I was meditating upon this, you know, certain things strike you that when you've read passages over and over again, they're familiar, there's a sense in which you know them, but there's another sense in which you don't really know them. And there are aspects and angles that you've never really considered. And what the Lord seems to be calling upon here, if I can put it this way, is that we are to incarnate what we are taught. It's not enough for us to be a spokesperson for Him. He's not interested in scholars who parrot the truth. They must imbibe what they hear and what they receive from Him. Don't just hear what I'm saying and then go and speak it to other people. So Jesus says, and you say, Jesus said this, Jesus said that, Jesus said the other. That's not enough. It needs to be imbibed within the being. It needs to take root within your life. Someone said yesterday about (laughs) the second most important thing you can give to someone is information. I was thinking about that in light of this passage. I thought, well, generally you can see the truth of it. But the Lord, the Lord's not interested solely in you passing on information. Anyone can pass on information, and many do. But he wants the disciple to imbibe everything he said. Reveal the words through the life so that the words come with greater power. Have you ever had someone who inspired you? You have a particular interest in a subject. And there's thousands of people who teach this subject. But there's this person who made this subject alive. It may have even been a subject that prior to meeting this person or being in the presence of this person, you didn't even have an interest in. But you're in their presence for a short period of time and all of a sudden they are drawing you in to have an interest in the subject. That person, I can tell you now, matter of fact, they are not just parroting everything they studied in university and everything they've read in the textbooks. They have imbibed the entire subject. It's taken over their being. They love it. 
It's all they think about. It's all they talk about. It's all they're interested in. It just dominates their whole life. So they're inspiring. They, they have a certain perspective that shows the, the importance of that subject and how it ties into the rest of life. And it can change the course of another person's life, a subject they never had any interest in. All of a sudden, this one teacher who is not just parting the information, but has imbibed the entire subject, gives life an interest in those who prior had no interest whatsoever. This is what the Lord wants for His people. He doesn't want them just to part what He has taught. He wants them to do, to live out, to show what He has taught. And I think, in part at least, this is what set Jesus apart. The scribes taught in a way in which what they taught didn't really seem to stem from the core of their being. And it didn't really resonate with people in any meaningful sense, except for those with the same hypocritical spirit that they had. So they were teaching, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. They were teaching these things that Jesus comes along and says, no, no, that's not it. They love to condemn. The Pharisee sits at the front of the worship place of worship and he prays thus with himself, I thank thee God that I'm not like this man. Again, with a hypercritical spirit to the other man in the building, the publican. And he would teach in such a way, again, as we dealt with last week, he teaches in such a way to elevate himself by diminishing others, by putting others down. And Jesus didn't do that. There were occasions where he spoke very directly, but it wasn't to simply elevate himself in some false manner. It was to speak the truth as it was and expose what was going on. And the people could see it for themselves. Could they not? Is that not what we find at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7? It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes had a certain amount of authority, but they couldn't get their head around the, the level of authority that Jesus had, even though he was not recognized by the religious elite in his day. What was the difference? The difference was he was living out what he was saying. And so what had he been saying? Well, think of the heart of this message in verse 35 and 36. What has he been pointing to? Love ye your enemies and do good and lend, hoping for nothing again. Your reward shall be great and ye shall be the children of the highest. For he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. Be ye therefore merciful as your Father also was merciful." He draws this clear distinction. And as he turns the spotlight on God, and he highlights the mercy and kindness of God, he's highlighting that to, to do two things. Number one, to give credibility to himself. Again, you go back to the earlier part. What is he doing? What do we find him doing? You have this great company of his disciples, a great multitude of the people, verse 17, out of all Judea and Jerusalem. So we would expect him to receive those. But also from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, we would not expect him to receive them. We would expect him to be unkind to them, have no time for them. They're, they're unclean people. I have no time for you. Move you away. I have no interest in you. But they came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. 
They that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for there went virtue out of him, and healed them all. This is his kindness. This is his mercy on display. So as he teaches and turns a spotlight onto God, he is merciful, he is kind. In one sense, it shows the validity of his ministry, which the Pharisees couldn't understand and didn't want to understand. They were critical because he was showing mercy to people. And so contrasting, the other part that was being taught was not just the consistency of Jesus with the Father, but the inconsistency of the spiritual leaders of the day. They were not kind. They were not merciful. And again, the resulting impact was, he's not like the scribes. He's completely different. And Jesus wants us to be the same. He wants us to do what he says, to show it forth, just like the Father was kind and merciful, so that's the way Jesus is. He wants us to be the same way. So he calls us then, in this appeal at the end of his message, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? He, the one who's hearing his sayings and doing them. He's like a man who built a house and dig deep and laid the foundation. You know, I thought about that. Dig deep and laid the foundation. What's the digging deep? Is that, is that the humility that recognizes the need for Jesus? The digging deep, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the getting down and the recognition that, you know, because the other man, he comes to the earth and he kind of puts stamps on the earth. And says, it seems hard enough, seems firm enough. I'll just build on it. And that's like the self-righteous. He looks at his own heart and he stamps on it and he thinks, you know, I, I think I can build a religion upon this. I, 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 can, I can build something that will please God upon this. I can do this. And so he builds his house. He builds his whole, his whole life upon a ground that he thinks, you know, I can, I can do what God requires by myself. But the one who's not taken away in eternal damnation, he recognizes that this ground of his own righteousness will never do. He needs to dig, dig down. And planted then in that digging area is the seed of the gospel, a resting upon Christ, a foundation that will be secure for time and all eternity. Someone who hears and does. Someone who responds. And this is so crucial. 1 John 2, 4, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Again, 1 John 3, 18, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed, and in truth. Now, very quickly, you consider all the imperatives. My time is gone, but the imperatives from verse 27, just pointing them out. Love your enemies, do good, bless, pray for, so on and so forth. You go down through all these imperatives. This is, these are the commands. Jesus saying, this is what I want you to do. The question is, are we doing it? Are we? If we want to lead, we must. We must be as he is. What's the key? What's the key? What is the key of keeping our own hearts? The key to helping us in our relationships? And the key to leadership 
in general. I think it's there in verse 47. Whosoever cometh to me, that's the first thing, cometh. Not once, not in the past, all the time. You want to calibrate your own heart? You want to know how to respond in your relationships? You want to, want to know how to lead? All right, you come. You keep coming. Come, come to me, come to me, come to me. And every time you come, I have something to say. Every time you come with that enemy, I'm coming to you, Lord, not just sitting here processing it and thinking how I'm going to get my own back. I come to Jesus and say, Lord, what do you have to say to this? What are your words in this scenario? And Jesus speaks, and you hear, and then you do. Heareth my sayings and doeth them. He's the one who builds his house upon the rock. He's the one who lasts. I think that's the key of, the, of, of maintaining a consistent walk with the Lord. Coming to Jesus, hearing what he says, doing what he says. That's the Christian life. That's it. Keep coming to Jesus. Keep coming to him. Every single day we come to him. We rest on him. We depend on him. We hear what he has to say and we do what he says. So to every believer, I trust that has taken root in your own heart. If you're here tonight and you're not saved, let me say bluntly, you're in complete rebellion against what Jesus teaches here. Come to me. That's what he says. It's a command. Come to me. Hear what I say and do. It's as simple as that. Come, hear, do. Come to the Lord Jesus. Bring your sin to the Lord Jesus. Bring your guilt to the Lord Jesus. Bring your filthy, hell-deserving soul to Jesus Christ. And he'll hear. He, He will give you words to hear. He will tell you glorious words of salvation, of acceptance, of forgiveness, of pardon. And he'll give you an entirely new platform to live your life. And how to deal with relationships, even to the point of your enemies. And he'll give you an ability of leading others and being an example to others. There's no life greater than following the master of all, Jesus Christ. Choose anyone else, you'll fall into a ditch and be destroyed. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. heads are bowed, let me say to you, if you are enduring spiritual troubles or you're troubled by something you've heard tonight and you wish to talk with me, let me know. I'll be glad to talk with you. I care little about social distancing when souls are in dire need, so don't you worry about that. Get before the Lord. Every Christian, take on board the verses, these 30 verses that we have covered. They are convicting, they are challenging, they are correcting, but they're glorious as well. Oh, that the church would show them to a perishing world for the honor of our Master.
and be like Paul, willing to suffer the loss of all things and count them but dung, that we might win Christ. Gracious Father, bless thy word. Continue to cause it to bear fruit in our lives. Root out all the remnants of our carnality and make us inwardly right and make us outwardly right and use us to lead and be a blessing to others. God, we're so weak. Plow up our hearts. Renew a right spirit within all of us. And day by day, give us grace to come to thy Son for more grace and grace upon grace. Be with us then throughout this week. Use our lives. Give us tokens of your goodness. Tokens that you're with us. Watch over this congregation, even in my own personal absence. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen. Thank you.